Because you think about relationships and you think about what, in terms of what you own or what I own, relationships are not normally at the top of the list. If we, if we were to ask, what do you own? We show a materialist mindset very often because when we answer a question like that, what do I own, we automatically think in terms of property. We automatically think in terms of material. We automatically think in terms of stuff. And even as you apply our ownership to materialistic things, stuff made of matter, thus material, even when you do that, the truth of the matter is, as we have seen in a number of contexts, we don't own what God has really entrusted to us. And so as we think about ownership, one, we need to break free of the materialist mindset that only thinks of ownership in terms of, of things. And further, we need to readjust our view of who really owns. It's God who owns and then in turn entrust to us as stewards or, or managers. Now, as you broaden then those things that are owned, ultimately not by us, but given to us for his purposes to manage on his behalf. Yes, material fits into that, but there are other things that fit into it as well. Time, not just treasure, but time. Time belongs to God. God created history, and God moves in history. History, the story of time, belongs to God. It's his story. And so my time really doesn't ultimately belong to me. It belongs to, to God and needs to be then managed for God's purposes. And so the treasure I really don't own, the time I don't own either, most of us will say, okay, I can, I can buy that. Even if I don't do it very well, I can buy that conceptually. But then think about who owns your relationships. Who's the owner of our relationships? We can think of ownership in terms of treasure. We can even think of it in terms of time if we're reminded about it. But who owns your relationships and my relationships? These things that we've been talking about for these many weeks. And we say and we sing, He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. He is Lord because He is God and therefore He is master of everything. And yet, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty shoe leather, living the life of submission to the one who is Lord and Master, very often there are large gaps in the things that we place under His Lordship. Who owns your relationships, my relationships? The truth of the matter is, He is Lord of those as well. Because we don't choose, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, ultimately... Who is going to be in our circle of relationship? There are some that we choose. We choose our, who we're going to marry. But as I pointed out a few weeks ago, even that changes over a period of time. People change. And the person that I'm married to 5 or 10 or 15 years later is not the person that I, precisely the person that I married earlier. You come into an entity like the church and the, the cons consistency of the church changes because new people come in, people move away, people die. And so I chose the church, but still those who comprise it are different than when I joined it. My family, I didn't choose what family to be born into. We don't choose who are going to be in these relationships. Who does? God, and he is the Lord. Christ is the Lord of that relationship. 
Because I don't own the relationship, I'm not the one who ultimately chooses who's going to be in most of my relationships. I also, secondly, can't be the final arbiter of how I'm going to treat those in my relationships. And that's a good thing. Because if I had the final say on how to treat people in my relationships, look out. And at times, all of us have displayed how we'd really like to treat people in our relationships. But he is Lord, not only of who's in that relationship, but how I'm going to treat people that are in those relationships. Thirdly, because he's Lord of the relationship, I don't have the right to determine when I'm going to forsake that relationship. I don't just use people until I'm done with them. And there are relationships in which God places us where he gives us a responsibility to people that goes beyond even our own desire to be in that relationship. And what keeps us there is our desire to obey him as Lord. And so as you think about what we're going to look at in today's lessons, you need to think about him being the Lord of our relationships and related to that connected to that is him being Lord of our time, our treasure, or our time, and our money as well. And that's why on page 104, you see the title of lesson 10 is just that, time and money. And how seeing Christ as the Lord of our time and money connects to how we pursue our relationships, how we treat people in those relationships, how long we stay in those relationships. Now, in order to set the big picture into which this notion of Christ as owner connected to our use of resources in relationships, in order to connect that to the big picture, I just have to take a few minutes and remind you of the big picture of our relationships. I've done this in various contexts in the past, so if you've heard me say this, then just stay with me for about five minutes, and then we'll look at the notes. But what is the big picture? in which I, in which you, engage in these relationships in which the Lord, the Master, our God, has placed us and tells us to fulfill His purposes. They're His relationships. He tells us how to treat people in them, when or if we have the opportunity to break them, and so on. What's the big picture? The big picture is the story of the Bible that begins with God creating people. And God creating these people without sin... And giving them some commands. He gives them some simple commands regarding their responsibilities to subdue the earth and to to till the garden, to take care of what God has created on God's behalf. He tells them that you can eat of all of the fruit of all of the trees in the garden, but there's this one tree in the midst of the garden that you shall not eat from. He gives them some fairly straightforward commands, one of which is that you are going to be fruitful and multiply. You all remember that? So there are going to be more of you than I have initially created. There are the first two of you, Adam and Eve, but I am telling you, Adam and Eve, that I want there to be more of you. Now, why is that? How does that fit into the big picture? Well, remember how God made Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us that among all of his creatures, they alone were made chapter 1 and verse 26 of Genesis, they alone were made in the image of God. They alone were made to reflect God back to God. 
They alone were made with the capacity to show God himself back to him. To see his moral character reflected in these unique creatures. So God made people with a particular capacity to show himself back to him. Now, why would God want to see himself? Because he likes himself. God loves to see his own character reflected back to him. That's what it means then to bring glory to God. The glory of God is God's character. And so God makes these people to reflect his character back to him. Made in his image. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because I want you to be mirrors reflecting me back to me. And I want those mirrors all over the place. I want lots of them. Be fruitful. Multiply. So that where I look, I see myself reflected back to me. So far, so good. Except you come to chapter 3. They disobey, and the mirror, the image that was created to reflect God back to God now is cracked because of the entrance of sin. And so, rather than a clear reflection of God back to him, it's now a distorted reflection. You can still see it a bit, but it's still there according to the Bible, but in a diminished capacity to see clearly what God is like. And God goes on a restoration project to restore broken mirrors to their original quality. And we call that salvation. And when one comes to Christ, the Bible begins the process of Romans 8 and verse 29 of conforming one to the image of his son. The cracks in the mirror are beginning to be repaired. Now here's where relationships and time and money come into the, this big picture. How does God go about this restoration project? How has he chosen to go about taking broken mirrors and repairing them? It's in the context of relationships. God calls you and me, who have already been called by him, out of the world and to himself, and he's already started that repair project. I'm assuming that's true of us here. And he calls us to be involved in relationship with, relationships with people for that very end, so that they too, one, come to Christ so that the restoration begins on them, and that we are instruments of that restoration in their life once it's begun. Helping them repair the cracks that is the mirror of their life. Just like he's doing that in my life. And in your life. Now that's the big picture then. And that's why God cares so much about relationships. Because it's part of his reclamation. It's part of his restoration process. To make people, refashion people into what they were originally intended to be. Now God could have said, I'm going to do this all one at a time without involving any of these other people. He could have done it any way he wanted. But God determined that this is the means by which we are going to be restorers and we are going to be restored as well in relationships, in messy, costly, 
time-consuming relationships. Now, if you're able to juggle your notebook, and I ask you to turn to page 105, and your Bible, the bottom of page 105, we have listed Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, part of the sixth chapter letter to the Ephesians, which if you just will sit down, if you haven't read the book of Ephesians in a while, it'll just bless your soul. Really, just read those six chapters. And read in the first three chapters about the grand big picture plan of God. And in those three chapters, he gives you the big picture, going all the way back to eternity past. When God determined that he was going to send his son on this reclamation project. But then begins to give you a clue as to the vehicle through which that's going to happen. It's going to happen through relationships, through a thing called the church in chapter 3 of Ephesians. At the beginning of chapter 3, verse number 2, Paul who wrote it says, I'm writing to you about, the NIV says, the administration of of God's grace given to me for you. And that word administration means, it's, it's translated in the King James dispensation. And it's, it's a compound word of two Greek words, oikos and namas, oikonomos. Administration. Chapter 3 and verse 2. Oikos means house. Namas means law. And, and Paul says, In God unfolding this grand plan, going all the way back to eternity past, He is now, in His oikonomos, His house order, He's using the church. And the church is, of course, those who have been called out. That's what the word means. Called out of the world. Who are are being reclaimed. And He's going to use the church to reclaim. And so you come to verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul says, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities and principalities and powers. Now, I'm telling you, if you'll read that, it'll bless your soul to see that you are part of something like really big. That goes back to eternity past. This thing called the church that God is doing. And his intent is that now in his arrangement, his house order, that the church will be the centerpiece of that. And he concludes those three chapters in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we think or ask. You guys remember that? And verse 21 ends it by saying to him be glory in the church. Amen. The amen's in the text. <laughs> and now comes chapter 4. Well, since that's the case, see to it then that you live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. That's how chapter 4 starts. Since all that stuff's true in chapters 1 through 3, see to it now that you live a life worthy. And how am I going to live this life worthy? I'm going to live it in the church and the relationships that comprise the church. That's what chapter 4 is telling you. And you come to verse 25. And here's what Ephesians says. 
of chapter 4. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You all see the connection? Relationships. How we relate to each other, how we speak to one another. As part of God's grand reclamation project, carried out through his church, and you play a role in that. We're all members of one body. In your anger, verse 26, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Now stop there with verse 28. And ask yourself the question, when does a thief stop being a thief? Yeah. One answer to that would be when he stops stealing. But the Bible gives a more elaborate answer. It's certainly true that he's going to have to stop stealing if he's going to cease being a thief. But that's an incomplete answer that he just stops stealing. When does a thief stop being a thief? It's not just he stops stealing, but let him, verse 28, work with his hands. Let him do something. Stop stealing and get a job. But it's more than that. that even those two are incomplete. When does a thief stop being a thief? He stops stealing, he gets a job. And thirdly, verse 28, he gives to other people. Why? Because that's the project for which we were made. To invest, invest in the, even the material sense. Invest money in people. Invest, as we're going to see, time in people. God's project involves you. It involves, therefore, the method that he has chosen to repair these broken mirrors. It's in relationship, particularly in the vehicle that he has chosen to carry out his work in this age, this thing called the church, of which you are a part. And it means investing your money in people. And it means investing not only your money, but your time as well. Turn to the next chapter, chapter 5. In verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. It's all about how I'm using my time. So back in chapter four, it's about how am I using my money? Chapter five, it's about how am I using my time? The notes in the pages to follow in your notebook are going to point out something fairly helpful. There are two Greek words that are translated time in your New Testament. One is chronos, just chronology. It's just ticking off the minutes and the hours. But that's not the word used here. The other one is kairos, which has to do with the period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The period we're living in right now. And it's telling you, make the most of this interim period now, between which Jesus has come for the first time and established this vehicle to reclaim his people out of the world and to himself in relationships, in the body. Make the most of that. 
until the Lord returns. Why? Because the days are evil. It is absolutely essential then that we have people who are willing to commit their resources. Uh, Whose resources? God's resources for the purpose for which he gave it. Money and time. And now with the 12 minutes I have left, take a look at page 105. Bottom of page 105, Ephesians 4. In this passage, Paul, who wrote it, commands to the believer, gives commands to the believer along with a reason or purpose. So in verse 25, why should we speak truthfully? Because we're members of one body. In verse 27, what's the purpose behind not sinning in your anger so that we do not give the devil a foothold? And then at the top of page 106, the question is, what's your primary purpose for working and making money? Is it to provide for yourself and your family, to live securely, to be able to retire, to be able to be comfortable? Or can you truly say, I primarily work so I can share what I make with others? What do your investments say about what you think about yourself and others? Is there any indication that you're investing your money in the things that God says are important? Now, you know, if you watch Sean Hannity long enough, you'll become convinced that Americans are extremely, extremely giving people. We're extremely generous people. He says that all the time. We're the most generous people on earth, you know? And I come away from that thinking, oh, man, what a great guy I am, you know? But let me give you a, a few uh, statistics about, about that. The average American today makes four times what the average American made in 1921 after adjusting for taxes and inflation. And by, way, by the way, the book from which I'm getting this was just published last year. Now, I know a lot's happened. But even just go back to last year. Real incomes have doubled since the late 1950s. Today's average middle-class citizen lives like the rich banker of our grandparents' generation. We have more clothes, bigger homes. We dine out regularly. Granted, most Americans are very generous compared to citizens of other nations, but by biblical standards, we're not generous at all. Over the past 20 years, 70% of Americans only gave 1% or 2% of their income to charitable causes. 30% do not give at all. People who profess to be Christians are not doing a whole lot better, giving away only 3 to 4% of their annual income on average. By percentages, Americans tend to be stingy, even though the total amount can make us appear generous. John Piper says this. Some of you know who John Piper is. But Piper has this quote about the way we ought to live. He says, a $70,000 salary does not have to be accompanied by a $70,000 lifestyle. God is calling us to be conduits of his grace, not cul-de-sacs. You know the difference. Not just gathering it all in one little dead end. Conduits, not cul-de-sacs. Our great danger today is thinking that the conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do, he says. No matter how grateful we are, gold will not make the world think our God is good. As long as I'm amassing stuff for myself, nobody's going to look at that and say, look how great God is. They're going to look and say, look how stingy you are. 
And look where your values lie. It will not make the world think our God is great. It will make people think that our God is gold. That is no honor to the supremacy of his worth. He goes on to say, I had a friend who was audited by the IRS because they thought that there was something unusual about the amount that he claimed to have given away in a year. And the question is, how many of us raise the eyebrows of the IRS when they look at what we give away? Now, Pastor, I'm here because, you know, I'm okay with what you teach most of the time. But now you are really meddling, dude. But you all know that I don't harp on money a lot. Only when it's in the passage we're preaching or only when it's related to the lesson. By the way, not a lesson I put together. So blame the authors. But the Bible has a lot to say about it. It has a lot to say about where your treasure is. There will what? There will your heart also be. And so what does where our treasure goes say about our priorities in terms of relationship and particularly as that relates to the calling that God has placed on us to carry out his mission in his world. We turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm just going to read this passage because it's very convicting in itself. Verses 1 through 15 of 2 Corinthians 8 as an example of those who had given themselves to the mission that God had called them to, including their investment of money. And now, brothers, verse 1, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Here is my advice about what's best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, he who gathered little did not have too little. Do you think that verse 15 could be in the party platform of the Republican Party? It couldn't, could it? Now, I'm not telling you don't vote Republican. I'm not telling, certainly not telling you vote Democrat. But I'm telling you this, what I said a couple of weeks ago, we want to be biblical more than we want to be political. Okay? And God has a different arrangement and a different view, a, a radically different view 
of things and how we use those things. One example to challenge us is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and the Macedonian Christians. And then if you'll turn over to page 107, the giving of Jesus is the second major challenge for us in how we give of ourselves. He's the centerpiece of that passage in verse 9. Though he were rich for your sakes, he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. And so as we look at the example of the Macedonian Christians and the giving of Jesus, it's a challenge to us to say, what investment do I make in relationships? Now, where's the primary place that those relationships occur? It's through the mission of the church, through the body. It's what Ephesians chapter 4 is teaching. It's what the New Testament teaches throughout. And so where should that investment be made? It should be made through the body. Just telling you straight up. Not to Ken, but through the body. And to those that come into the body from out of the world. And to those that are engaged in the body. And the Bible places a priority on that. Did you all know that? We don't have time to turn there, but Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. Galatians 6 and verse 10 says this. It says, do good to all men. But then it adds this phrase. Especially to those of the household of faith. Especially to believers. Prioritize the body, one another. And so friends, at this Christmas season... It's good for us to look at the example of Jesus, the example of Jesus' followers in the first century, the Macedonian Christians, and to ask ourselves, where does my checkbook say my priorities lie? And it needs to be in the development of relationships, including investment of money and then also of time. Bottom of page 107. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15, as we've already pointed out, refers to the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. If you turn to page 108, it says that very thing. And we'll conclude with just a few points on this issue of time, and then I've got to quit. But the middle of page 108, there's that distinction between chronos and and kairos that, that I mentioned. And let's just look at the bullet points about what investment of time is not and what it is. First, bullet point, it is not calling for just frenetic activity. It's not saying just get involved and get busy and run around like a chicken with your head cut off aimlessly so that you really get nothing done and you frustrate yourself and everybody else. It's not saying that. But what is it? It means, second bullet, bottom of page 108, that we see our lives in light of our various callings, plural. And then it goes on to list the various relational callings that I have. I have a calling to be part of the family of God in the body of Christ. If I'm married, I have a calling to be a husband to my, to my wife. If I have children, I have a calling to be a father to my children. If I'm employed, I have a calling to be an employee to my employer. As I go through my daily activities, I have a calling to be a neighbor to those with whom I come in contact. On and on it goes, and it's our various callings and seeing those callings as part of our mission. Every one of those relationships as part of our mission. And then page 109, the last two bullets. It means that we're to seize the little moments of life. Did you know that 95% of our life is lived in the mundane? Suppose a husband and wife are upset with each other. Will they turn toward each other or remain angry? It's a mammoth redemptive moment. It's used. Huge. And consider how many of these 
We miss every day. And then fourth, we must see the context in which these things take place. Paul says in verse 15 of Ephesians 5, we do this because the days are evil. We live in war zones. We get out of bed every morning and there are battles raging for our souls, lives, friendships, and marriages. We can't afford to waste those moments. The war is one in the little skirmishes that take place throughout our lives. Wake up, Paul says, you are at war. Investment of money and investment of time in the priority that God has in his great reclamation project, that priority of relationships. Will you do that? Now, I've got one suggestion for you, and we're done on time. Thanks be to God. I have one suggestion for you, and that is that you consider taking the seminar that I offer called Get a Life. Some of you have taken that. But the Get a Life seminar is about this very thing in some depth. And at the end of the Get a Life seminar, I give you a sample mission statement around the various relationships in which God has placed you so that you can order your time and your money around your calling. All right? If you're interested in that, then please see me about it. All right. We're done. The kids are going to come in.